0: Judges chapter 21 this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Judges. This morning we will finish Judges and begin our new book, the book of Ruth. But chapter 21, look at the last verse of the chapter, verse number 25. This is really a summation of the entire book. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We've gone through the book of Judges now, and at the very end it tells us once again there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We would say it like this as we review again the book. God's people ignored God and forsook him. That's the entire story of the book of Judges. They rebelled against his rule. And what we see time and time again is it goes from bad to worse. We finished last week the life of Samson. And here was Samson, the last judge of Israel, number 12. He lived a life that was sensual and shallow. He was consumed with himself. He was arrogant. And he does, he, he sort of characterizes the times. Last week we didn't finish Judges, verses 17 through, or chapters 17 through 21. But in in those chapters, Israel got to the point that there, there was so much debauchery happening that the tribe of Benjamin, they were immoral. They were almost completely annihilated by their actions. And so the book just tells us about God's people who forsake him. They do it their own way. They do what's right in their own eyes. And they suffer the consequences. It's amazing to me as we start at Judges, Judges chapter one, it begins by the death of Joshua. Joshua, that great commander, the one who led the people in the promised land, that generation who saw the works of God. It begins with his death. And we come to the end, and one tribe is almost completely annihilated by their moral decay. There's a lesson for us here. We must be reminded. One generation cannot ride on the coattails of the one before them. It's impossible. I, I'm, I'm concerned this morning because we have a church full of people who are basically second-generation Christians. They've come from a home or a background where their parents were... Believers, whether they were excited about the things of God or nominal, but but they knew of Christ as an early age. And so for them, this is not new to them. This is the second generation. And for many of those people, they would not been delivered from a life of terrible sin and devastation. They got saved when they were young. And if we're not careful, what happens is this. Instead of knowing God intimately like we should, like the first generation who saw His works, who saw the great changes that God made in their lives, We sort of coast along with our faith. We become nominal. We just sort of go through the motions. And it might be okay for the second generation to coast at times, so we think, but the third generation will pay the cost. Christianity is one generation away from being annihilated. And if we have a bunch of Christians in the second generation who don't get serious about the things of God... We could write our own book of Judges, because our faith will not last. Do you know that most churches don't survive past three generations? Oh, they might still be there. They might still gather. But Ichabod is written across the door. God's not been there for a long time. And so let me just caution our people, who are second-generation Christians, or even third-generation Christians. God does not have grandchildren. He has children, sons and daughters. And you must know Him. Your faith must be real. You must be, in your own life, seeing Him work and, and watching Him make the broad strokes in your own life. We forget what we've been saved from. And whether as a child or an adult, I have been saved by God's grace. I have been delivered from destruction and death. And God is worthy of my life and my worship and everything I can possibly give Him. And so we come to the end of the book of Judges, and they're in trouble. Again, we're reminded that they needed a rescuer, they needed a deliverer, they needed a king, and they needed a Savior. We look now at the book of Ruth. Ruth is an interesting book. It is one of only two books that the title is the title of a woman. The other, of course, is Esther. Ruth is an introduction to the historical books of Samuel. And it's been called an addendum to the book of Judges. And you'll see why in a moment, because in this book of Ruth, we have a wonderful contrast. We come out of Judges with all the, the, the moral decay, the dysfunction, uh, The moving away from God, and in the midst of this story, we will find a woman who is godly, who is faithful, and God uses in a wonderful and marvelous way. I have to say to you, uh, the book of Ruth only has four chapters. It is one of the loveliest short stories that have ever been written. Honestly, I want you this week to go home and read the book of Ruth, it's fantastic. And it starts off, well, we won't get to that. Let's just start it then, all right? And tell the whole story without getting it. Let's read it together. I'll read it this morning. Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse number 1. And what I'll do this morning is read the first 18 verses, then we'll go back and make some comments from there. Ruth chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrodites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them, wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return into the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her father. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband, if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons. Would you tarry, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people, and unto her gods, Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left off speaking unto her. We come to Ruth chapter 1. Beginning at verse number 1, it says, When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the Bible doesn't specifically tell us this, but we can gauge from what we know of judges that this famine was a direct result of Israel's sin and turning their back on him. In Leviticus chapter 26, the, verse, the first three or four verses God says to his people, I brought you to this land, it's good, it's flowing with milk and honey, it's a prosperous land, and as long as you do what I tell you to do, as long as you obey my words, I will bless you. You'll have rain, you'll have crops, you'll have productivity. And then midway through, about verse number 14 of Leviticus 26, he says this, But if you ignore my law, if you do it your own way, if you rebel against me, then the very opposite will happen. I will withhold the rain. Your land will be cursed. You will be in trouble. And what's ironic here is, not only is this the land of milk and honey now is under a famine, there is no food, there is no rain. Israel has sinned against your God. But the very place, Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. It was a place where bread was plenteous. And now in the land of Israel, the house of bread is not producing any bread. It reminds us as we begin this chapter that the Lord's punishments are not idle threats. He said, listen, if you don't obey, this is what will happen. And as we think about the Lord and the biblical threats that we see, understand this. They, of course, are for real, but they are also reminders and warnings for God's kindness to us. God warns his people because God knows the end result of sin. Listen to me. Sin always brings death. Sin will always kill your joy. It will kill your peace. It will kill your security. It will will kill relationships. God knows that. God is not some kill joy in heaven saying, don't do this and don't do that because I hate you and I don't want you to have any happiness or joy. He created us. He knows the best way to live. He knows what brings us the utmost satisfaction. It's in His law and His way. And He knows what sin produces. Physical death and eternal death. And so God's warnings, uh, they need to be taken seriously. But we understand it's from kindness. He is calling His people to repent, to look to Him and to live this is not what Israel has done. They've rebelled. They've turned their back. Look at verse number 1. It says at the end of the verse that this certain farmer goes to the land of Moab. And again, I think we see here the importance of knowing the Word of God. My, my friend, listen to me. You ought to be reading your Bible, and don't just pick and choose your favorite spots. You ought to read it from cover to cover. As we've gone through, this should pique our attention here, that this Israelite, this one who is in a covenant with God now is leaving the house of bread, Bethlehem, and he's going into the land of Moab. Moab is no place for God's people. Remember how they started? Do you know how the, tribe of, the people of Moab started? They started from Lot and his daughters. Not only that, when Israel left Egypt, do you remember they're going to go through the Promised Land? And they said, hey, Moab, can we pass through your borders? And they said, no. They were cruel and unkind. They worshipped Chemosh. And they worshipped Baal Peor and and different gods. They were a wicked people. And we just finished Judges. We found out that Eglon oppressed Israel himself. And yet Elimelech thinks it's a good idea to take his family now into Moab. Verse number 2, and the name of the man was Elimelech. His name literally means, my God is king. My God is king. His name is Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. It means lovable. It means my delight, a beautiful name. And then they have two sons. The one is called Malon and the other Chilion. It's funny, we we pick names for our children, and hopefully you pick names that mean something, right? I know people say, ah, it's a boring name, I don't want that name. My mom talked to me this week, and she said to me, Rick, I was going to name you something else. And so she told me the name, and I said, hey, listen, I'm glad for my name. My name means something. Do you know what Richard means? It's my name Richard, it's not Ricky. It's Richard, all right? It means powerful ruler. That's a good name, man. That's what it means. And my middle name is Anthony. It means priceless one. That's a good name. And I said to my mom, I like my name. I'm happy. I'm glad you didn't name me Norbert. Or I didn't want that. Because names mean something. They should mean something. And so if you're, we got a lot of young families here and they're, uh, I mean, our church is growing. We're growing because of the nursery. I mean, there's kids everywhere and people are looking for names. Let me caution you. Don't use these next two names. Okay? Melon and Chilion. They literally mean, Malon has the idea of being sickly. Oh, here's my son, sickly, all right? <laughs> or Chilion, which means pining, or destruction, or mortality, right? So here are my two boys, just had him. Here's sickly, and here's death, all right? Don't do that. Don't name it. But that, that's their names, and I don't know if in, the, in their early stages of life this was the case. But here's Abimelech, whose name means, my God is king. And yet, he is not living as God is his king. He leaves the house of bread. He devises his own plan. He thinks this is going to fix everything. But now listen to me. The problem wasn't just moving away. Where he moved to was about 50 to 75 miles away from Bethlehem and Moab. And they were prosperous. And so again, I think it confirms the fact that Israel was being judged for leaving God. The answer was not getting up and moving. That wasn't the root problem. was location. The root problem was rebellion. They had rebelled against God. And instead of submitting and repenting like he should have done, he did what he saw was fit. And he pays for it. God's people make poor choices sometimes. They produce sad experiences. And they leave deep disappointment. My friend, you better be careful with your decisions. Decisions have consequences. And what you do, when you step outside of God's boundaries and God's laws, it will not go well for you. Oh, at first it might. It might seem like, yeah, we're in Moab now. Now we have we have cropped and it's good. But you cannot continue to disregard God and His laws and prosper. Some of you men listen to me, the decisions you make for your families, they have consequences. And think about this story. Here a man takes his family to the land of Moab. They're not a covenant people. They don't respect God. They have different gods. They don't know anything about Yahweh. And he dies. And so he has two boys. Guess what kind of girls are going to marry? Moabites. That's where they're at. Our decisions matter. And what we do matters. And here is an Elimelech. He escapes famine but he walks right into death. Verse number three. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them, wives of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and Her husband. So here's the story. They leave for a better life. Limelech makes a bad decision, takes his family. And so they get there, and right away they have a funeral. They bury the father. And then they have two weddings. Kind of a joyous time. And shortly after, they have two more funerals. They thought they were walking to life. They walk into death. And now we see in chapter 1 a family teetering on extinction. You have to remember something. When it says that Naomi was, was, was left without her husband and her children, her two sons, we're, we're not talking about today where there's some kind of social network or there's some security there or she can go to the government and get some help or some assistance. When a woman didn't have a husband in those days or two sons, she was in real trouble. Real trouble. The present without a man... Future without hope. She had now no husband, no children, and no grandchildren. If we were, if we were making this book into a movie, and it could be, it's, it's a wonderful book, but at this stage, when we find out about the grief that Naomi is bearing, if there was a musical score for this, we'd be hearing bagpipes right now. They'd be playing Amazing Grace, and people would be weeping. This is, real, this is grief. And some of you folks understand that. You know what it's like to lose a spouse or a child. And we grieve with Naomi. Here they go, with what, what they thought was going to be life. And now it's death. Verse number six. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord hath visited his people in giving them bread. And this is where maybe the music just dies down a little bit. There is a glimmer of hope now for Naomi. And God has remembered this widow. She will not be left alone. In the midst of her grief and pain, good news comes like refreshing water. Wait a minute, Naomi, back home, that place you left ten years ago. Listen to me. God has visited his people. He's given them bread. He has intervened. He has not forgotten his covenant people. He has supplied their need. And my friend, listen to me. Verse number six is all of God's grace. It's his grace. There is no evidence from verse six that Israel has repented. There's no evidence that they turned and and sought out God's face. But in their suffering, God once again sees his people and he intervenes and gives them bread. Verses 7 through 9. Wherefore, after she hears this good news, she went forth out of the place where she saw and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return onto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Hey, listen, you've been kind to me. You've, you've been kind to the dead. I appreciate what you've done. And listen, Naomi loved these girls. They were her daughters-in-law. They were, they were with each other for ten years. And you know this. When you go through hard times and difficulties, it, it, it just sort of binds people together. When you suffer with people... There is a connection there that cannot be broken. Some of you, have, you've experienced that. You've, you've had family members who've gone through great tragedy, and you were there when it happened, and so there's this, there's this bond, there's this connection. Make no doubt about it, Naomi loves these girls, and they love her. But she says, look it, there, there is no hope. Uh, what I'm offering you is to go back to Bethlehem and nothing other than Yahweh, or you can have everything minus Yahweh in Moab. Go back. Go back to your home. Find a nice husband. Get married. Have children. I have nothing to offer you. Moab has everything. Your father's house, where you grew up, minus Yahweh. The gods of Moab are there. Bethlehem has nothing to offer me. I have no husband. I have no children. But Yahweh is there. Verse number 14. After the speech, the two girls lifted up their voice and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clave unto her. Orpah counted the cost. She knew going back to Bethlehem, they were not her people. It wasn't her God. She counted the cost. And as much as she loved Naomi, she said, Listen, forget this. I'm going back home. I'm going to my own people. I'm going to my own God, Chemosh. I'm going back to where I'm comfortable. But it says that Ruth clave to Naomi. Verse 15. And she said, Naomi, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people, and unto her gods return thou after thy sister-in-law. That's kind of a weird statement for Naomi to make. But remember, in Bible times, gods were sort of territorial. And so the God Yahweh, Jehovah, the true living God, was known in the land of Israel. But Chemosh was the God of the Moabites. And so she says, listen, Your sister-in-law has gone back. Follow her lead. It's it's amazing. These girls, both of them, Orpah and Ruth, had the same speech, had the same conversation, from the same lips, from the same woman. One decides to leave, but Ruth says, I'm staying. She cleaves onto her mother-in-law. And now in some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, spoken by human beings, is what Ruth now says to her mother-in-law. And they're so powerful, people use them to this day in in their weddings. Listen to the words that that Ruth proclaims now to her mother-in-law. And Ruth says, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And when Naomi saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, she was done. She was done. Naomi and Ruth both given the same speech from the same lips, same circumstances. One turns and the other cannot turn. She is no longer what she once was. I'm not exaggerating here when I say about this text. We can point to this text and say this is Ruth's conversion. What she is saying is this. Listen, I cannot go back to Moab. I cannot go back to Chemosh. I cannot go back to those gods because... I'm going with you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She now places her faith and trust in Jehovah God. She is what we would call today born again. She is saved. She understands it's not in in Chemosh. It is in Jehovah God. She believes, and she turns. Listen to me this morning. God does not believe for you. Every one of us will face a decision, and your decision will be either enter into the narrow gate that leads to life or the broad gate that leads to destruction. And God will not decide for you. You must decide. That's what Ruth does. She understands that the only hope is in Jehovah. The only hope is in the true God. The only hope she has is finding strength and help and comfort under the shadow of His wings. And so this morning, let me encourage you. Understand something. This story applies to us today. I know the vast majority of people here this morning, you would, you would say, I am born again, I know Christ, and I thank God for that. But if you're, you're here today, I want you to know something. It is not in being religious. It is not in being good. It is not in being Baptist. It's about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is the only hope, the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. There is no other hope. It is in Christ and Christ alone. And this morning, if you don't know that, don't guess. Don't wonder. And talk to me. I'll, I'll take a Bible. I'll show you from God's Word how to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that, that a holy God will judge sin. He will. He is the Creator. We are accountable to Him. He is God. We, as human beings, we have sinned against Him. We are all sinners, every one of us. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we lust. You look at the Ten Commandments. We break them all continually. We have found, are found guilty before God. Every mouth will be stopped. We won't be able to say, Well, Lord, you know, you know, I'm just flesh. You know, I'm just frail. I'm just human. No, we've sinned against God. And God's judge, judgment and justice must be met. He's not just going to say, ah, never, I'm a good God. Never mind. I, I'm, it's okay. That's not his goodness, is our biggest problem. Because he is good, he will judge sin. And my friend, those are condemning words. If the Bible stopped there, we'd all be in trouble. But it doesn't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God's judgment. And this morning, when you are in Christ, you can honestly say, my chains are gone, I've been set free, I have been purchased, redeemed, and bought by the blood of Christ. And if you don't know that today, today is the day of salvation. Today. There are no guarantees. Elimelech thought he was walking into life. He takes his family and he dies. His two sons get married and they die. Listen, we are all going to die. We are, we are marching to the grave. And it's foolish not to think about it. And that's what we do. We put it to the back of our heads. Man, when I was a teenager, I never thought about death. In my twenties, thought about it a little bit as in the military. Thought about it. But you know, as I get older, I think about death all the time. Because I see it, and I know it's just a matter of time for myself. You must be prepared. And the only answer that is right on Judgment Day is not I was Baptist, or my parents were Christians, or my dad was a pastor or a deacon, or I tried to do the best that I could. Those are all wrong answers. The only answer that will be acceptable is this. I come in the merits of Jesus Christ. I have nothing but he gave me everything. It's not my righteousness, it's his. And so I encourage you this morning to do that. Back to our story now as we conclude this morning. This is Ruth's conversion. And you, you might think this morning, big deal. Okay, that's a great story. It's very touching. Yeah, it goes from sad to kind of encouraging now. And the story does get better. But what's the big deal? It's just one Gentile woman who really, in Bible days, not only is she insignificant because she's a woman, and that's not me saying that, okay, don't get mad. in, In Bible days, she was a woman and she was a Gentile. For the Jewish mind, it was like, those are two strikes already. And yet, the Bible records this conversion of Ruth. And I want to tell you why it's so important this morning. Why this single event in the life of this woman changed everything. I don't want to ruin the story for you, but it does get better. You know, all stories start out like once upon a time, from the 14th century that started, once upon a time. And you hope at the end of the story, it's, and they all lived happily ever after. And this story's like that. You go home and read it. But you're going to find Ruth now is converted to the true God, Jehovah. And she gets married. It's a wonderful story. She finds Mr. Right, Boaz. And they have a child. The child's name is Obed. That's kind of a weird name, Obed. I wouldn't name my kid that either. I don't know what it means, but it's a weird name. And that may mean nothing to you. But Obed Obed then gets married and he has a child. And that child's name is Jesse. Which maybe, if you read your Bible, maybe things are starting to come together now. Because Jesse has a child. And his name is David, the king. And this is what they're all looking for. The book of Judges said every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king. We need a king. We need a savior. We need to deliver. We need someone. And here is Ruth, this insignificant woman who has a baby, who in turn has a baby, who has a baby whose name is David, the king. He comes. He rules. He reigns. But listen to me. The story doesn't end. Because in David's line... From this Moabite woman who is seemingly insignificant comes a name. A name that is above every name. And from her comes, she is part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father, that this same Jesus is Lord of lords. He is King of kings, and he will rule and reign someday in righteousness and truth. Listen to me. This woman's conversion mattered. And your conversion matters. Your conversion matters. God has saved you for a reason and for a purpose. It is not insignificant. In that moment, you were on the road to death and hell and destruction. And when you turned, you repented and believed. You found life in Jesus Christ. That's not insignificant. It changes all of eternity. That decision changes everything. And your decision changes everything. Let me encourage you. Naomi must have been doing something right. Because in ten years' time, Ruth says, "I've been watching. I've been listening. I've been looking at your life. I've seen how you've handled grief and heartache and despair. And I got to tell you something. I'm not going back to Moab. Those gods have nothing for me. I'm going to follow Jehovah, Yahweh, the true God." She had a good testimony. Your testimony matters. You are the best Christian somebody knows. You are where you're at right now in your life, you are the best Christian someone knows. By the grace of God, may we be like Naomi, who apparently lived a life in front of this girl that she desired what she had. Can I ask you something? Are you giving people a thirst, a desire for the gospel of Jesus Christ? When they look at your life, when they look at your marriage, when they look at your children, when they look at your work ethics, when they look at you around your house, do they say, listen... I might think they're crazy and they're nutty. They're going to church every week, sometimes three times a week. They're whacked out, but there's something about that life that I wish I had. There's something about that marriage and that home, or even their struggles as a single parent, that there's grace there. And I might not understand that, but it makes me really thirsty for what they have your decision matters your life matters we are called to declare Jesus Christ that's our job it's our job and we're called to make a difference and i look at this little book and it amazes me here is a woman who seems to be insignificant and yet she is in the line of Jesus one of one of only four if you count Mary five women in the genealogy of Christ this poor depressed, lonely, Moabite woman is saved and her life changes. My friend, listen, believer, when you understand the gospel, your life has to change. It has to change. We're not going that way anymore. We, 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 we repented. We turned. It has to change. And in that change process, we should be allowing people to see our lives and have a thirst for what we have. And then we should be we should be life on life with people so they can grow in grace as well. I wanted this morning two questions. Are you saved? Are you born again? Do you know Christ? And if you don't, you need to. But number two, if you are born again, does your life produce a thirsting for the things of God? Or do people say about you, you know what? If that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. And Are you now taking advantage of the life that you have to take the truth of the gospel and pour your life into someone else's life? God has not called his people to sit in a pew and be comfortable for the rest of your life. He's called you to take what he's given you, that precious gift, to grow in it and to share with others and watch lives be changed. Who you are and what you did as a believer matters. And God has a plan and program. And you're in it. God is writing a beautiful story. It started in Genesis. It will end in Revelation. And in between the pages are his saints, you and me. There's a job to do. There's something he's called us to do. It's not insignificant. It's not meaningless. And I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care what your situation is. If God can take Ruth and use this Moabitess woman, he certainly can and will use you for his honor and glory. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.